kept saying it, and I brushed it. Yeah, it was, it was that. Was that, that guy. Right. He's been, been all the way down. He's been struggling <laughs> through the wilderness this whole time. <laughs> <laughs> And today we're beginning our third season of How It Looks From Here with an exceptional episode, the first of two opportunities to hear from a panel of five widely recognized authors. Poets and writers of literary fiction and nonfiction, the five voices you'll hear were faculty members at this summer's Elk River Writers Workshop, a gathering held annually out in the stunning beauty of Montana's Paradise Valley. The initial question I pose to these writers is the basis of this podcast. From there in the middle of your life, and in these days of climatic disruption, how does the world look? Take a listen to the reflections of Beth Piatote, Camille Dungy, J. Drew Lanham, Gary Ferguson, and Pam Yuschuk. And thank you all for coming. I've told you some about what How It Looks From Here is about. One of the things that I know is that how this panel looks will be have as many versions as there are people in the room. So how it looks from here varies just slightly and sometimes quite substantially from listener to listener because that's the nature of communication. That's the nature of words. So today we're using our words to talk with these magnificent creators of literature who um, have different kinds of experiences and perspectives to bring to bear on this question, how it looks from here, life in the time of climate change. And so I want to introduce these people. You've heard some about them and some of you have been spent the morning with one of them one of the three, there's three here who are instructors right now. This is Beth, Beth Payotot, yes, who is a Nimipu scholar and author. She is a member of Chief Joseph's tribe and the Colville Confederated Tribes and author of the Beadworkers Stories with Counterpoint Press. She's an associate professor of Native American Studies in the Department of Ethnic Studies at UC Berkeley and the director of the Arts Research Center there. Thanks for being here. And this is Pam Yushuk, right next to Beth. Yushuk. Thank you, Pam Yushuk. Pam is a poet of long standing. If you have the chance to speak with Pam, you will hear stories of people who you've heard of across your lifetime that she has had some kind of interaction with. Pam is a teacher and she is an editor 
She is an editor most particularly of Cutthroat, which is a, a literary magazine or journal that is out there, so you can check that out. She's also been the editor of Truth to Power and Furo Chicanex. She was the American Book Award Prize winner for poetry in 2011 for the book Crazy Love. She's finishing work on a new poetry collection, a novel titled Normandy, as well as her multi-genre memoir titled Crazed Angels of Hope, an Odyssey Through Ovarian Cancer. So next is Camille Dungy. And Camille is a professor at Colorado State University. She and her family braved the highway coming from Fort Collins to get here and made it yesterday. Her debut collection of personal essays is the guidebook to relative strangers. And that was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. She's also the author of four collections of poetry, including Trophic Cascade, the winner of the Colorado Book Award. She was awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship in 2019. Next to Camille is Gary Ferguson. He's a science and nature writer who's walked over 30,000 miles, the recent 2,000 with me, <laughs> um, through wilderness. And he's, he's done that in order to write his 27 books. That list of books includes favorites like Hawk's Rest and Decade of the Wolf, and his memoir, The Carry Home, which I will give you an inside scoop. Um, Gary's quite a writer, and I am biased, but so what? He's still quite a writer. <laughs> 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 and um, The Carry Home, he considers his finest literary work. And so if you choose to pick up and read that book, you will not be disappointed, but you will also need Kleenex. Um, most recently, he published The Eight Master Lessons of Nature with Penguin Random House, and he's the co-author of Full Ecology, Repairing Our Relationship with the Natural World with me, Mary Claire. So here we are. And oh, yeah, and Drew. <laughs> J. Drew Lanham, who's fresh from Alaska via South Carolina, right? Yeah, because those two things go together. <laughs> yeah, but they do if you're Drew Lanham. He's an American author, poet, and wildlife biologist. He was raised in Edgefield, South Carolina. And in 2013, Drew wrote a piece for Orion magazine entitled Nine Rules for the Black Birdwatcher drawing attention to the lack of black birders and diversity in general among naturalists. In 2016, he wrote Birding While Black, and in 2017, he published the award-winning memoir, The Home Place, Memoirs of a Colored Man's Love Affair with Nature. So here we are. Thank you all for being here. Here we are to ask this question. How does it look to you from here? these days, taking into account, in particular, how stressed we are with changes in the climate. Each of you has written something. Camille, um, I read something from you from uh, the collection Smith Blue and the poem called Post-Modified Food, where you wrote about 
the story of the man waiting in this waiting room, waiting to get into heaven, and the rule that you overheard this story, right? The rule for getting into heaven was everybody had to have forgotten you. And the way you knew is because they forgot your name. And so that led you to talking about names. And so when I read that part, I thought about the Christian origin story and the domination that was to have happened there, according to the translations, and the sustained ongoing and ongoing uh, colonial impulse. And naming is a way of claiming. And so then I read in your poem, the maze was different in every state, harder here, sweeter there, approaching blue, approaching white, yellow, approaching green. Still, I longed for orange. And I thought, when we name things, we separate ourselves from them. So what's, what's your thought on that relative to, <laughs> how does it look from over there, Camille? <laughs> oh, wow. Um, I feel like um, just before we started, Gary and I were having a conversation about um, different plants that we come to expect in a place and the variety of reasons why those may not um, exist. And the book I'm working on right now is, um, the title is Soil, the History of a Black Mother's Garden. And I'm, I'm really thinking so much about how to, how to diversify my landscape from the ground up uh, and the, the necessity of that, the necessity of pushing against the monocultures of modified food and um, the the monocultures of of the herbicides and pesticides that allow uh, a, a pristine lawn with a particular kind of what can grow and what can't, and the ways that all those things flow into who can thrive in a space and who can't. And when I think about the questions about about the world, my daughter is growing up in um, this world of radical climate change, the world of radical um, change of, of what what grows, what can grow, what, what non-human animals can survive or not. I guess I circle back to uh, another, <laughs> another um, phrase from the Bible I was raised with, which is that first, first and most important commandment, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. Um, I guess that was the second one. Just love your God and then love your neighbor. Okay, sorry. Um, but, but you hear what happened in my mind, that that love your neighbor, to love my neighbor is to love my God. Um, to love my neighbor is to love myself. To love my neighbor is to love the landscapes of my life. And um, and to figure out how to help support and sustain uh, a flourishing with the knowledge that we are in change. Um, I feel like the, the, the space I am in now is no longer a space of how, how do I stop this? Because it's not, it's very hot right now, right? It's not stopping. But how, how do I 
move with is like the Aikido move. How do, <laughs> how do I move with this force that's coming at me and, and use that to the advantage of my neighbors and myself, mm. right? In a, in, a, in a way that we can um, continue to create um, supportive, sustaining environments that we acknowledge the big changes that are happening and how can we roll in, in ways that um, what we plant um, and what we move and what we expect will create um, other kinds of s support. This is, I mean, I could keep talking for this full hour because it gets super confusing um, about what we are, humans are, are a mobile species. Um, and if given the ability, we can pick up and, and move around and go, but there's a whole lot of our neighbors on this planet who, who need that particular stretch of land and that particular cohabitant plant and species. And as we change any of the pieces, we change all the pieces. Um, so also sometimes I go to bed crying <laughs> because it feels so overwhelming. Um, but um, but that can't be that can't be the every night thing. So it does. It's about it's about noticing. It's about leading with love, and it's about leading with the intention to to really try and listen to as many as diverse a group of voices, human and greater than human, as possible, to try and enact positive change. Thank you. So there are days, there are days when you go to bed crying, and that you say is not sustainable if you were doing it every night. You can't do that every night, but I think to not do that is a lie. Yeah, and thank you. And it you. doesn't honor the reality of the grief. And if we don't grieve, there's, there's no reason to change, right? 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 So we have to grieve. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. You know, my Beth, I want you to tell me how to say this word. Not so. Natsoch, I'm gonna do my Natsoch. In the opening poem of, of Bead Workers, you kind of, it feels like you weave the attention between the body and the natural world. So this kind of thing, Camille, that you're, you seem to be pointing to that, you know, here we are in relation with everything. And to not cry is to not be telling the truth. And so then we look, and you, I believe you were saying we look to everything to get a hint. So as I was reading this, this opening poem, um, it seemed that you're weaving that relationship between the, the body, the human body, and the experience embodied, and the natural world with no indication in the poem of the two being separated. Um, and later then you also write in the same book that the animals are helping us out. So that's two different things. But this, this part of, I, tell me again, not sook. Not sook. Not sook. Thank you. Kus, first taste of life. Not air, but water carried by our mothers. We taste water rising from earth, turning in salt waters where not travel through ocean waves and darkness, gaining power in those far away salt currents of sea and labor to return again 
to the cold river of your origin, upriver to give life. So I wonder if you could say more about this reality of connection and belonging. Um, I am I'm Nez Perce, and so our homelands are just on the other side. I don't know what direction I'm pointing. <laughs> um, and um, we do have uh, uh, Nez Perce people have hunting rights um, in this area. So our very large uh, migratory um, life food sustenance patterns are very large and diverse. And so moving around, I really relate to that. Um, so you were reading from the opening of my book, which uh, begins with feast. And um, the feast is actually our order of the world. And this is intensely um, impacted by climate change. So um, the, the book opens with, um, I used a, a Nez Perce feast as a literary structure. <laughs> so um, these three pieces that open this book, they're different genres. One is a poem, one is kind of a nonfiction thing. And then the third is a narrative short story. But they all have the same structure, which begins and ends with kus, with water, because that is the beginning and end of all of life, is water. But then um, the different foods appear in the order in which first the natsoch, the salmon, and then the elk and the deer. And it goes in the order in which the animals offered themselves to the humans. And then it goes in the order in which the plants appear on the earth. And so that structure of a feast, the way the foods are laid out on the table when there's a feast, and we have feasts to celebrate the return of the salmon, to celebrate the um, roots, to celebrate the berries. And then at the solstices, we have these feasts, and then at other times of the year too. But this is all about um, experiencing and caring for our understanding of the order of the world. And one of the things that happens in that poem is the the confusion of first and second and third person, and also that it, it does weave together across time because these are practices that have been eternal to us in our homelands. And so the tribes next to us have the same longhouse practices, um, but sometimes the order of their, their roots and berries are different because of where they are in the world. So when their berries ripen might be different from when ours do, and so their, their order might be different. So when we're talking about the feast and the order of the foods, we're talking about the whole order of the world. And so what is happening with climate change is that the, our temporalities are getting disrupted. So what does that mean for how we understand who we are? And I think that the thing that we're doing, of course, tribes, uh, natural resources programs have, you know, um, uh, initiatives and, and formal things that they're doing to combat climate change. But at an individual level, it's about maintaining that order and that reciprocal relationship that we have to plants, um, to salmon, our promise to them. When we have salmon ceremony, it's because we are establishing or we are recommitting ourselves to our contractual relationship with salmon to take care of them and to honor them. Um, and so that aspect of reciprocity and our responsibility to these specific um, life beings in our, our world. <laughs> that's what, I think that's where I find the hope or the, um, the anchor of um, all of this. And 
just one last thing. I think the thing that is most important to me is I think everybody has to look at what is sitting before them to do and do that thing. And what I feel is most is sitting most directly in front of me is language revitalization and the urgency to um, to reinvigorate our indigenous languages because that's also about the order of the world and to restore the sonic ecologies of our homelands by always speaking our languages to all the living beings in those spaces because it's about this vibrational energy. Uh, our language, our indigenous languages are their languages and they want to hear and feel those languages with them too and that's part of their health. And that's part of the health of the entire ecological system is in language. And so did you just say sonic ecology? Yeah, yeah. restoring sonic ecologies. Restoring sonic ecologies. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that, <laughs> yes. Yes, sit with that one. Yes. Well, thank you for that. And, and I would need, I, I know for myself, kind of like a plant, I would need to hear the language over and over again, and then it would come easily to, that's, that's my experience. I've not been able to learn languages any other way. So, uh, Drew. I'm, I'm just going to do this. I feel like I'm doing the roll call here, but then we'll get you in conversation with each other. Drew, this is something that I read from The Home Place. And the quote goes like this. And so I think about land. But more and more, I also think about how other black and brown folks think about land. I wonder how our lives would change for the better if the ties to place weren't broken by bad memories, misinformation, and ignorance, and as Beth is suggesting, loss of language, having a language. Genocide and colonization. <laughs> that, that would be more direct, genocide and colonization, yes. Yes, M broken by bad memories, misinformation, and ignorance. I think about school children playing in safe, clean, green spaces where the water and air flow clear and the bird song sounds sweet. More and more, I think of land, not just in remote, desolate wilderness, but in inner city parks and suburban backyards and community gardens. So here we are with people living primarily in urban centers and in suburbs who live in this country. And they too are there on the land, with the land. Say, say more about that and what you've been seeing and thinking. Thank you, Mary. I, you know, I, I think, you know, for me, um, coming up in a, in a rural landscape, growing up country, as I did, um, there, was a, there was this assumption wildness uh, and, and, and this privilege of it, to be, to be honest about it, of, of being surrounded by woods and water and fields and being sustained by it and understanding that. But, but then to, to come to this place now of having had the privilege of, of, of growing up that way, but then of traveling to see these wild spaces. Um, and, and in this process that I call conjugating the wild, um, wild, wildness and wilderness, 
to, to understand that, that we really need to begin to expand what those four letters, the base of that word means, wild. And, and so those faraway spaces, places that we always, that I seek even to be, Alaska or some other place, is, 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 is really at the other end of this, of the tenses of wild. And, and so in, in those spaces that are confined by concrete or asphalt, as I say, that in, in some ways doom it, um, that there are opportunities for wild and wildness to exist. But, but it's, a, it's a matter of rescaling. So we can talk about economies of scale, but we also have to talk about ecologies of scale. And so to, to that point of that, that weed, so to speak, becoming a wildflower is a matter of perception, but it's also a, a, a matter of, of how we as, as writers and, and lovers of nature really begin to expand the role of what wild means. And, and, and not to, to covet and hoard it in these spaces that only a few people will ever get to and ever see. Not, not that those places aren't important. They're, they're important even in our imagining of them if we could never get to them. That's, that's an important thing. But to have the opportunity to understand those connections, whether you are downtown or downriver, um, is, is I think an important construct for us to begin to come to some understanding, some recognition of our shared plight um, and, and hopefully some, some reconciliation of that. And, and so to me, somebody who grew up country and, and, and never dealing directly with quote unquote urban issues, um, being in those spaces so far away from it and then recently being lost in an urban space, um, it, it, it brought me to, to the realization that, you know, I was just as, as, as lost in that wild urban space as someone might be who went forth into some wilderness in which they were uncomfortable. So it made me flip really my conjugation of it and thinking about what wildness means and it's not just big beasts with sharp teeth, um, or maybe it is, but they wear blue. And, and so you, you have to begin to think about what that word means and, to, and, and for us to delinearize wild and wildness and wilderness. So, you know, from, from where I sit, um, it's, it's gonna mean from a policy perspective, really us um, re rethinking access, or lack of access because wilderness means lack of access. That's what it means. And, and, and how does that sit with us, you know, as, as we, we fight for equality, as we fight for equal access? What, what do those things mean? And so I have to sort of come off of, of, of my paradigms, my old paradigms and my ways of thinking about things, about wild, wildness and wilderness to, to some different space to expand it. And I don't think it diminishes in any way what, what wilderness is or those wide open spaces and, and, and places that we need untrammeled. But, but we need to ask the, the, the question 
um, of, of, of where we fit and be willing to humbly accept where we fit in, in all of it. You know, and as Camille talks about, about love and, um, and, and acceptance, you know, that's, that's part of that conjugation to me. I think we've all felt being in a place and being accepted by it. Um, and, 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 that's a, and that's a special feeling. And it's to, to, to have someone just because they live not in that defined wild space to say that they are misplaced, because that's what that's saying, that they are misplaced, that they aren't in the space that is to us somehow superior. I think is a, a, a diminution of humanity. So, you know, I just think about wild, wildness and wilderness in these ways. This is Mary Claire and how it looks from here. Stay with us. We'll be back after this brief break. Well, and in that there is the word terrific comes to mind, but I think that's incorrect. It's almost sublime or simple belonging, that we all belong to each other. And then the other thing that I was wondering as you were talking, and you know I've talked about this before, this idea that Gary and I actually took from our friends who are in recovery programs called being right-sized. You know, what does it mean to be right-sized? And it doesn't mean to disappear altogether. And it doesn't mean not to be present with wild nature, but it does mean to have some measure of respect. And then you have that, and what, what if that? And then the respect we would show to each other as human beings, what if that? And I don't mean magical thinking. The natural world seems to have worked it out. And it makes me think of some of what Pam you've written here recently, right-sizing yourself in your pain next to a lizard. Mm -hmm. So that was the poem called Song of Reprieve, mm -hmm. where you have the lizard, um, my lessons, old lizards, whose ancestors slid under the booming feet of Brontosaurus. And then at the end of that poem, you say suffering as keen as my own. So I wonder about, in your writing, how you experience the land that you are living on, the land that, that supports you through your pain and through your joy. Um, and I, I think of your memoir as well. So um, today, August 8th, marks the 10th anniversary of my surgery for stage three ovarian cancer. Um, and when I went into that surgery, I didn't know whether I would live or die. When I came out of that surgery, um, my oncologist told me I had a 15% chance of living. It changed the ecology of my body. It changed the ecology of my spirit. And it, it, it uh, changed the ecology of my mind. Because when you're up against something like climate change, every day and you can't go to bed crying, which I do sometimes too. It's not despair. Despair is defeat. And I knew that it became very clear to me 
that if I despaired, I would die. And I had to learn, and I mean it was a process of learning. This did not happen overnight. This has happened over years of years. I learned that my healers were many and that they weren't just my Western medical doctors. Um, one of my healers was a hummingbird, one that kept coming back again and again when I was in terrible pain and would just hover in front of the window looking at me. I wasn't trying to feed, it was just looking at me, talking to me. I've learned to listen to when birds talk. Um, it's gonna be a little rambly, but right before surgery, my husband and I walked up Arrowhead Mesa, which is outside of Bayfield, Colorado, where we lived at the base of the Mesa. And as we were walking down the Mesa, something extraordinary happened that's never happened to me before or since. And like Drew, I'm a total bird brain. I've been a bird brain since I was a little girl trying to draw them on the wing, which was sort of ridiculous too. <laughs> Anyway, we were walking down Arrowhead Mesa and an eagle flew up our back, our backs, came at the back and flew right up over our heads and flew off. Um, I listened to that eagle. I heard every feather. I heard the whoosh that I have never heard so close in my life. And it told me I was going to be okay. That eagle told me I could do this. Um, we came across a tree once in, the, in um, the Redwood National Forest, and that tree had died of disease. It was hollowed out, and inside of the tree was another tree growing. That told me I, my ecology of my body could come back. I never completely lose faith, although sometimes I do, <laughs> in climate change, because I see this terrible imbalance, as we all do here, um, between our bodies and our minds and our spirits that are all one, and instead they're all separated and all over the place. We don't listen to the animals anymore. We don't talk to the animals. My uh, grandma came from Czechoslovakia. She was a seer and she worked with plants. And she taught me all the plants. And as a little girl, I used to go crawling around in the woods with her. And she was teaching me all the names. Of course, they're not in English, but that's because she, you know, she had a different language. <laughs> um, anyway, the the uh, that connection, that interconnection, not only can heal disease. I'm here today. I'm here because I listen. I am not the wise one. It's the birds. It's the plants. It's the trees. I turned my backyard into Tucson, in Tucson into a forest of, of native trees and plants. Um, if you do small things, I have a garden too. Um, I love my garden and I let my garden, my front, my gardens go wild. My neighbors hate it that I let them go wild, but that's what the plants want to do. That's what they want to do. And um, so I know that. And I do feel like, uh, like Camille, that it's all based on love. And as Joy Harjo once said very sagely, I think we must turn slaughter into food. And in our work and in our ways that we love one another and we care about one another and interact, 
interrelate to one another, deal with genocide in our past. Uh, my family was also slaughtered, but it was slaughtered in Europe, you know, in, uh, in Eastern Europe. But um, that kind of thing resides in our genetic structure at the cellular level. I think part of my cancer was caused by the three fracking wells they put in around our house. I can't prove that, but I can feel it. Mm -hmm. You know, I know that. And so I will forever fight fracking in Colorado. I will always do that. I'm very privileged to have two homes. Um, and if, I, if a student hadn't given me a home in Tucson, I couldn't have gone to the Mayo Clinic. And so these things, there's like these interconnections that we have with people and with animals are everyday things and they are the healers. And I think that healing ecology is what's really interesting to me as a way to heal our planet, Thank heal you. our bodies and spirits. Thank you, Pam. Thank you. Yeah, Gary, you know, I'm you're the last one, but it, all, everyone so far has talked about both the, the love and the grief about what's going on, the deep, deep love and the deep, deep grief. And Joanna Macy says, we do ourselves no favor trying to hold the grief away, but we must hold them both because our creativity and our presence are compromised when we don't hold grief even as, in fact, the holding the grief lightly, not admiring it and getting stuck in an eddy of storytelling, but rather holding that grief because it's with us always. But also then that gives, that holding gives the rise to even more creativity. And you can hear that in the things that people are saying. We've got everything we need to be right-sized, great humans in the process of repairing this mess that we've gotten ourselves into, seems to me. Gary, you've written about a, a kind of grief that is unique to someone who looks like you and came from your generation. You wrote in this article in uh, Orion called A Deeper Boom. This is one excerpt from that, plain and simple. We were lousy at building big tents in 1970. 80% of the black and Hispanic population lived at that time within five miles of a toxic waste site. But the environmental movement ignored those communities. A truly effective environmental justice movement wouldn't gain traction for almost 20 years, thanks then almost entirely to black and Hispanic rather than middle-class white activists. Feminists, meanwhile, were offering insights into essential principles of ecology, including the fact that for any system, the key to long-term health is diversity. But they too went largely unheard. We missed opportunities to grow our sense of the world. And in the process, we lost millions of allies for the environmental movement. Sadly true. Uh, hopefully that's, uh, I know it's changing, but um, this is an interesting question to me. I, for some reason, what's popping into my head is that 
the Greeks had these various definitions for what beauty is. And one of um, the definitions was kaleo, which means to be of one's hour. You are beautiful when you are of your hour. So that could mean that you're beautiful when you're a 15 year old, being a 15 year old, when you're newly married and that's your hour, perhaps that's where your beauty is when you're a, a, an old decrepit carpenter who can barely find the strength to hold a hammer anymore. That's embracing that as your beauty as well. Um, and I mention it here because I think if there is to be reconciliation and if there is to be beauty for uh, men, especially white men who have uh, been the beneficiaries of the patriarchy for centuries and centuries and centuries, it's going to have to really be predicated on looking at our hour. What, what does this hour uh, for me as a, a white man consists of, certainly I think it first and foremost consists of sitting in the back of the room and, and listening, um, just listening and uh, not feeling that uh, I have to <laughs> direct anything. Sometimes though, I do uh, marvel at how entrenched this sort of patriarchal um, power trip has, has been. And that takes me back, to be honest, to um, the modern scientific revolution uh, back in the days of Descartes and, uh, and Bacon. And, you know, Descartes used to go around and give lectures uh, in Ulrich's uh, Amsterdam area and different parts of Europe. And he would take his dog with him and let that dog lay on the stage. And he would uh, wax on about how um, he is absolutely certain that absolute, no animal, no animal other than humans are capable of emotion, are capable of even feeling pain. And then at one point he would go out and kick his dog and the dog would yelp and the audience would be rather taken aback. And Descartes would say, oh, now, you know, don't worry. That's just like the spring of a clock going off. That dog doesn't actually feel any pain or discomfort at all. It's simply an automatic response. This is a, uh, that's a disease. And uh, it's predicated on a tool that became very useful uh, for developing technology called scientific method and subject object thinking. It's very powerful and it's useful. But along the way, you know, when Descartes says, I think, therefore I am, he's honestly, um, given his orientation, um, I think I am the observer, you are the observed. And that is what gives Descartes um, science power. Again, it can be used very wisely and has been many times still is being, but it can also be used to see the rest of the world in objectified ways. So the objectification of women, the objectification of people of color, um, that, that really got supercharged in, in that era. And so uh, it, it, it is arguably still in every institution, I would say, that we have, from education to medicine, you name it. We're, we're trying to recover from it, but it has been a, a hell of a long hangover uh, based on thinking that that tool is the truth of the world. And so when I start um, 
getting overwhelmed with grief and, and sadness about that, what I try to do is go to the natural world. I had a friend, Lavoie Tolbert, who's 86 now. We'd go out walking and hiking and he'd say, look at this, this is three and a half billion years of life. It's the very best life can be. It's figured out all of this stuff. When you walk in a forest, you walk among champions. Well, guess what? We humans are nature too. And so we are wired, we are hardwired to be able to take advantage of the same qualities that allows nature to thrive. Whether we choose to do it or not is another matter. But let me give you a couple of examples. Look at, look at the notion of diversity. The prime predictor of whether an ecosystem is going to be healthy and whether it's going to be resilient, whether it's going to be able to last long time, whether it's going to be able to evolve in the face of disruption, which is pretty much the story of life on Earth. Disruptions come, those who are able to fit and adapt to the new environment thrive. Diversity in nature is a big, big boon and diversity in human interaction is a big, big boon. Uh, the, the scientific papers that are cited most often around the world are the ones that have had a diverse group of scientists from all backgrounds uh, participate in them. They've done studies about juries and found that if the jury is made up of a diverse population, they actually remember what is said by the various witnesses on the stand far more accurately when they're discussing ultimate and ultimately delivering a verdict. On and on it goes. Um, the fact that uh, in animals of roughly the same size, female leadership is pretty much more often than not the norm. Okay? So for us to have not just objectified women, but to have denigrated the archetypical feminine energy, the relational impulse, that's another side effect of, of the patriarchy. That has left us really wounded. And so what can we do to repair that? If you look into animals, there's a tremendous transmission of wisdom and knowledge from elders, among elephants, among orcas, among lions, among wolves. Okay, what can we do to make sure, not that elders are the only source of wisdom, I mean, the dynamism of young people is critical as well, but to mend those separate uh, silos we've got for how we live in this culture. So to me, while I have great grief uh, and, and, and sadness about how that patriarchy has played out in my own life, just as an aside, you know, when I grew up in, in the polluted parts of northern Indiana and told my parents when I was nine I was going to the Rockies and actually did, tried to ride my, I told them I was going to ride my stingray bike at 13 to Colorado and they put the kibosh on that, which was mysterious as could be to me. I don't know why they said no, but they did. I finally ended it up out there and as Mary's son, I've walked some 30,000 miles in the wilderness, but I first started by feeling like I had escaped that which was ruined in the Midwest. And, and the black and the brown people who were most suffering from the steel mills of East Chicago and Gary, I left them behind too. But I was out in the wilderness and I could write about the wilderness and I think I wrote well about it and hopefully I encourage people to fall in love with the wilderness. But the fact of the matter is I was, I was replicating a lot of that sort of subject object thinking that, um, and, and I, as a white man, I had 
the freedom to do that. I could say, oh, I'm going to go live anywhere I want. I'm, I'm, I'm done with this. And, and off I went. So I've had a whole lifetime to, uh, and I will hopefully continue to consider how that has played out in my life. But the healing to be done for me is, is in nature. And it's not overly hidden. We know what allows the natural world to thrive. And now to build a bridge and break down the walls that exist between the human psyche and the natural world is what we, uh, I, I really pray, are on about. Because that's, that's where a, a healthy and, and more loving future lies. about each of these authors and the Elk River Writers Workshop in our show notes. Treat yourself and pick up the writing of these beautiful beings. Again, check our show notes to find lists of each participant's books. And check in next month when we share the conversation the panelists had among themselves following the thoughtful reflections you've just heard. During the conversation, both Gary Ferguson and I referred to ideas from the book Full Ecology, Repairing Our Relationship with the Natural World, authored by me and Gary Ferguson and available in bookstores everywhere. And now before we go, a quick pitch for our podcast. If you like what you're hearing on How It Looks From Here, make sure to subscribe. Let's get these perspectives out there. Tell your friends and family. Share a link right now with someone you know would enjoy learning how it looks from another viewpoint. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. How It Looks From Here is an educational collaboration between Full Ecology and the Systems Zoo. How It Looks From Here was created and produced by me, Mary Claire, and Joe LaVisca. Editing by Joe LaVisca. Music by Cedar Mathers Wynn and Gary Ferguson. Find us on Instagram at Full Ecology and at www.fullecology.com. Keep listening and be in touch.